Okay. So, uh, Dwayne set us up well, and we're actually going to kind of hop right in this morning with the conversation that, uh, that we're going to be leaning into for the next, the next really six weeks in, in a lot of different ways. Mark 1, 14 and 15, after John was put in prison, this is John the Baptist, uh, Jesus went to Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said, the kingdom of God has come near, repent and believe the good news. The kingdom of God has come near is the opening statement to the narrative of Jesus' ministry, of Jesus' purpose, all right? So we get this idea throughout the scriptures that Jesus came to establish what we call and what he called the kingdom of God and to extend it. This is the theme of the New Testament. Believe it or not, the theme of the New Testament is not just God loves you or God forgives you or you're supposed to be saved. The theme of the New Testament is that Jesus has come to establish a new kingdom that changes everything, all right? So this is, this is it. So what is the kingdom of God? And we'll get to why this matters, hopefully. At least hopefully by the end of our talk, you'll feel like that it matters in some way. The kingdom of God is a, is a world and a reality where God's rule and God's priorities are fully expressed, Okay? So, so the kingdom of God is anywhere where God's heart, priorities, and realities are fully expressed. Now, if you think about that for a moment, that means that the kingdom of God can be very multifaceted, right? So it's the, the sort of thing that um, it can be now, and it can be in the future. It can be manifested in the systems of the world, and it can be manifested deep within a human, a person, right? This is why it's, it's mysterious. So um, we're going to get to what that means later. But, uh, oh, I'm, I was supposed to read that out loud. Okay, so, yeah, sure, let's just do it. Okay, so right here. Um, so Jesus is asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come because this was something that throughout the entire arc of the scriptures, all the Old Testament, there was this, this longing that one day God would establish God's kingdom, okay? And it was assumed that that would happen in certain ways. And so when Jesus came proclaiming that the kingdom of God is near, that was matched up with all of these ideas from the prophets and everything else that said, oh, okay, so the kingdom of God is, is coming and this one's going to bring it. He's our Messiah. So what's it going to look like and how is this going to happen? And so he was asked by the Pharisees, when, when would this come? And he said, well, the kingdom of God is not something that can be observed, nor will people say here it is or there it is because the kingdom of God is in your midst. Sometimes that's translated as it's within you. The kingdom of God is something that is, is accessible there. But later, at other times, Jesus is asked when he said he's going to bring the kingdom, and they say, is this, is this true? Like, prove it. And he's like, look, the blind are being healed. You know, the poor are hearing good news. Um, slaves are being set free. So all of a sudden, we get this image that it's also very social. Again, we get this multifaceted kingdom of God. Uh, but, it's, but it's mysterious, and it's different than what people are expecting. And then Jesus, lay, uh, in, in the book of Matthew, says that our highest priorities for a disciple of Jesus ought to be this, this kingdom of God. Seek first God's kingdom. Seek first, before anything else, a world where the priorities of God are being expressed. A reality within you, around you, whatever. And all the things that you spend your time worrying about, chasing after, they'll, they'll find their place. But first establish that. And so, 
So, so this is kind of this ongoing theme. And then Jesus um, seemed to say that his disciples, as they did this and trusted him, would then actually become a part of this other kingdom along with him. So it wasn't just something to chase after. It was something they would enter fully into. And so in, in this passionate prayer that Jesus gives in the book of John before the end of his life, I've given them your word, and the world has hated them, has hated them for they're not of the world any more than I am of the world. So all of a sudden, he's saying, okay, all of a sudden, my disciples are participants just like me in this otherworldly system, whatever. My prayer is not that you remove them, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. So it's fascinating. Theologically speaking, this kingdom of God is this, this place where we are invited to become both heirs because we are children of God and God's the king of this kingdom. So we're heirs to this kingdom, which means that we have some ownership of it, <laughs> of, of, of expressing it, of leading it, whatever. That's overwhelming. And we are citizens of this kingdom. We are a part of it as a part of our identity. So the early church got this, all right? The early church then started talking like this. They looked at what Jesus did in Ephesians 2. He came and preached peace to everybody, and through him we have access to the Father. And then, so consequently, you're no longer outsiders, foreigners, strangers, whatever, but you're fellow citizens with God's people. We looked at this before in the group that prayed before this gathering. We looked at this passage for a moment. But fellow citizens with God's people and also members of God's household built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. So, you are a citizen with God's people. Now, here's the interesting thing about being a citizen with God's people. God's people live all over the place, right? God's people, people who are following Jesus, live in every country. They live in all sorts of different cultural contexts and, and times over history and everything else. So this, this idea that we have citizenship that belongs with people from all over the place ought to make us give pause and say, huh, I wonder what that means, all right? And so, so they, um, you see this over and over and over again, but our citizenship is in heaven in Philippians 3 and then Colossians 1. He has brought us into a kingdom of the son he loves. So the whole early church understood that they had this thing, this citizenship that was a part of their identity. Now, the, the problem that we have is that I have one of these things. And so when I'm, when I'm born, and when everyone is born, the land that they are born into gives them a certain type of identity. They become a citizen of that land. And, this, and, and to be a part of a citizen of that land provides a lot of good things, often. It provides certain protections and certain rights if countries and these boundaries that have been made are actually doing the job that they mostly proclaim that they are there to do. Then there is lots of good things about that. But beyond the, the things that are given to us as citizens, there's often an attitude that we have toward this land, right? Whatever country that we grew up in or were born in, we have, we have a sense of, of love and care and you might even say priority that you feel has been given to that. Certain countries may embrace that a little bit more than other countries. We happen to be in one that strongly embraces this idea. And so, so we have to think about all of this because the problem is that there are times in this whole 
this whole reality where we've got these, this citizenship that we're told in the scriptures that belongs to God, where we're citizens of this kingdom of God that we can't really see, that's, you know, kind of mysterious, and then that we've got these citizenships that we belong to on, on earth. And so what ends up happening is two things. The first thing that can happen, right, is that these kingdoms, these citizenships that we have, they clash, right? Okay, so we have these, these class, clashes of identities that happen sometimes when what we understand as being a citizenship or valuing a certain thing is at odds with our citizenship and valuing of another thing. So this is a, a challenge sometimes for us to figure out. And to be honest, the less invisible citizenship often tends to win out. Okay? The one that's a little bit more clear-cut that we've breathed our whole life. So, the other thing that happens when these citizenships come is that they enmesh with each other. And we start to think maybe they're the same thing. And this happens a whole lot. So sometimes these kingdoms clash, and sometimes they enmesh. And all of a sudden, we're not sure where one kingdom ends and where the other one begins. And, and, and the, the challenge, specifically, as we're going to be talking about the context of what it means to be um, living in the United States, to be Americans, which most of us are, um, the thing is that when this enmeshment happens between kingdoms, it doesn't really hurt the kingdoms of the world. In fact, they love it. Because it's very powerful, you know, to use... There's like nothing more powerful in the world than using religious language to establish nationalistic and political power. Are you with me? Am I losing people? It's okay. So, so there's like we love mixing our understanding of God and our understanding of our country. Okay? This is really, really important to, to our lives. You'll see. Um, that happens and it's very powerful and it's been used by politicians and it's been used in all sorts of ways to, to get things um, as, as people went. Um, doesn't hurt the world's kingdom, but it sure kills the good news of God's kingdom. It's like Tony Campolo says, it's like mixing ice cream and manure, right? Because the manure is mostly unaffected, but the ice cream is really ruined. And so this is, this is what happens when we struggle to see the difference between our identity as citizens, citizens of God's kingdom and citizens of a worldly kingdom, all right? And Jesus seems to be fairly confident that these two kingdoms are not, um, are not particularly the same. So in John, uh, in John 18, he says, My kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders, but my kingdom is from another place. So Jesus seems to express the idea that the kingdoms of God and the kingdoms of the world around us are going to be slightly or maybe completely different from each other. Okay. If that's true, then we have to figure out what is the kingdom of God like, because the Bible can use all sorts of, can be used in all sorts of ways to argue what God's kingdom looks like and how it, what it means to build this kingdom. Wipe out the opposition. You can find good biblical arguments for that. Establish God's kingdom. Destroy everyone who does evil. You can find good, good biblical arguments for all of that. So we've got a journey to go on for the next few weeks, and it involves three things. The first thing is that we have to understand what the kingdom of God is all about. What is this kingdom of God in real life? 
okay? What are the values of Jesus expressed um, as, as this kingdom? The second thing is we've got to name how that might compare with American values and foundations, okay? How does that compare? And then finally, um, we have to learn what it means to embrace the way of Jesus when that allegiance feels torn, when it feels like they clash. What does it look like to be faithful to Jesus and not to other systems of the world? So, we're going to be using a series of, of films during Lent over the next six weeks. Some of them are really short, some of them are longer. Some of them are three or four minutes long, some of them are like 13, 14 minutes long. And they are different voices from a variety of perspectives that help us look at ways that we're tempted to give our allegiance to an empire of the world and ways then to embrace our identity as citizens of God's kingdom first and citizens of the United States second. Uh, this is a challenge that many Americans in the United States do not hold uh, in that order, but we believe that that's the only order that, uh, that you can really experience God's kingdom and following Jesus faithfully. So, some of this might make you uncomfortable, friends. Uh, some of it might push buttons or challenge deep connections that you've always assumed, and that's okay. It's all right, really. We promise. You're going to be okay. Uh, some of you are going to want to look at these and only point fingers at those you disagree with politically or theologically and say, yes, that is what they need to hear. Um, that's a really, really common posture that we can take rather than be self-reflective. But I want to encourage you to have an open mind and to have an open heart and to discover where Jesus might be stirring you toward new understandings, new attitudes in these coming weeks. Um, by the way, to critique and compare kingdoms is not to hate our country nor is it to ignore the many good things about living in the United States. It's simply to be clear about what it means to have our ultimate allegiance in Jesus. Can we establish that? Okay, it's really important, because otherwise you're all going to get, not, not you, you know, but maybe somebody, get really defensive. Because we're not hating on, on a country when we talk about, <laughs> one might say, the greatest act of love, right, is to be able to be honest in these ways. And so sometimes we have to be able to critique. Uh, so, that's all right. Um, let's see. Also, oh, here's the, the last thing. These films were made between 2014 and 2017. So if you want to look at one of these films and be like, man, they're just, they're just pushing the button of, like, what happened last week. Mm-mm. They're really not. It sounds like they are. Sounds like they are, but they're not. So be aware of those things, that this is, you know, these are, these are voices that can offer us maybe some more timeless um, important perspectives. <sighs> okay, this week our starting point, shocking, it's about Jesus. Uh, so, so I'm going to show you a film from a theologian and pastor named Greg Boyd. Greg Boyd is the pastor of Woodland Hills Church out in Minnesota. Uh, he is uh, <laughs> a, a very brilliant mind that I've had the privilege of studying uh, under during my seminary work. Uh, writ, wrote the book that kind of went larger than anyone expected, called The Myth of a Christian Nation, all right? And, um, and speaks really uh, with, I I've no, don't believe I've ever met someone with a greater biblical knowledge grasp than, than Greg. He also wrote a, a book called Crucifixion of the Warrior God. And if some of you have been through my journey with understanding Old Testament and things like that, you're just going to hear Greg and be like, okay, so Keith's really not that smart at all. He just got it all from Greg. So uh, now there's other voices that I'm not nearly as familiar with that we'll be looking at. But this is a longer film. It's like 13 and a half minutes, so just relax into it. Uh, Greg's going to establish first 
that I want you to listen for. Um, the first part of the message is a reminder of the story of the Bible and how our understanding of the Old Testament fits into how we understand Jesus. And then secondly, Boyd starts to offer an encouragement on what it looks like to participate in God's kingdom and how we've brought our nationalistic assumptions into that and how Jesus shows us a different and better way. All right? It's okay that he's a little bit all over the place, too. Um, we're going to embrace the messiness because when it's a conversation style, it's not a message. It's just sitting down and having a conversation. In those times, people go all over the place. So you don't have to remember or take or agree or anything with everything, all right? Just receive and see what Jesus might want to speak to you. And then we'll have dialogue afterwards, and we'll keep it pretty simple. Fair? All right. Let's do it. That was me. I leaned on the button there. All that lead up, and then boom. Is everything that's in the Bible true? What are the true parts and the crazy parts? Hang on a second, the bus passes. Well, Travis, you know, I am convinced that Jesus is uh, the Son of God. Uh, which is the embodied Yahweh, and he seemed to believe, he put, a, he put tremendous trust in the Old Testament, quotes it all the time, refers to it as God's word. So I feel obliged to accept that whole canon as God's word, and I've got every reason in the world I won't go into now, but to think that that carries on to the New Testament. So I, I believe that, that the Bible is divinely inspired, uh, the whole thing, plenary inspiration of the Bible. Uh, does that mean it's all true? Uh, of course not. Uh, anyone who says that hasn't read the Bible. You know, you know when, when, when Job says uh, to God, you know, he's really ticked off at this point. He's in despair. He says, God, you blind the eyes of the judges. They judge unjustly. If it's not you who blinds them, then who is it? And they throw the uh, innocent out on the street and they starve. But you don't listen to the prayers of the, the innocent. You don't care about them. Uh, you, you mock those who are in torment. When, when Job says things like that, is that meant to be true? Now, it, I think it's a faithful report of, of where Job was at, but it's not meant to be true. Or when the... The you know, author of Ecclesiastes says, you know, it's all vanity. Uh, what good does it do? The, the righteous and the unrighteous go to the same place. Is that meant to be teaching us truth? So it's all inspired, but it has to be interpreted in different ways. Uh, there's no, you can't simplistically say, you know, God said I believe it, that settles it for me. Um, you have to do a little thinking around it. Sometimes a little research around it, find out the original context. The most important thing I think is this. Jesus taught that all scripture bears witness to him in John 5 and in John 24. The whole thing is supposed to be pointing towards him. And one way or another, it's supposed to bear witness to him. And the center of what he's about is found on the cross. The cross is, I would argue, the thematic center of everything he's about, manifesting the self-sacrificial love of God, uh, manifesting the character of God. And that comes across most clearly on the cross. So what's most important is that we interpret the Bible through the lens of the cross, because that's what it's all about anyways. God's redeeming work uh, and revealing himself and redeeming humankind and defeating evil on the cross. Um, and so read it through a, with Christocentric spectacles, always looking for how does this in some way or other point towards Jesus. That's the ultimate meaning of, of, of the Bible. And that's when I say it's inspired or even infallible, it's infallible on doing that. Well, you were quoting the Old Testament, which I thought we don't really have to read anymore because of Jesus. Oh, but I, so that's kind of a, it's I, critical right there, right? I, we don't even need the Old Testament. I, we, we absolutely need the Old Testament. Um, and even if I, we, if I thought we didn't need it, I'd still believe it because I, uh, I, I, I cannot correct Jesus on his theology if I call him Lord. I, I can't, he, Jesus one time said, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and yet you don't do the things that I, I command? 
you could just as easily say, you know, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and yet don't believe the theology that I teach? And that's a foundational aspect of his theology. So I embrace it as inspired. And I don't think you can understand who Jesus is unless you understand the whole history of Israel, God raising up a people, and all of that, you know, uh, that circuitous kind of journey they all went through. All of that is laying the groundwork for the coming of the Messiah. But it does it in different ways, and so you have to be careful. The Bible's not like a cookbook where it doesn't matter where you pull out a verse, you know. Um, it has the same meaning. No, the Bible's a storyline, and you've had to read it like a story. I think it's like a detective story, really, where there's clues that are laid early on, but they only make sense in light of the end. I sometimes tell people that the Bible is, is a whole lot like uh, the Book of Eli, uh, that, that, that movie, or, or The Sixth Sense, where the last, you know, the, the last minute of the movie reframes. Buzz! The last, the last minute of the movie reframes the entire thing. I mean, you've got to go back and watch it now, again, because Everything takes on a new meaning in light of the end. And that's how it is with the coming of Jesus. He comes and it really blows people's minds on, on who God is and what's up. Uh, they didn't see, you know, there's continuity with what was told in the Old Testament, but there's also a whole lot of surprises. Um, and so, for example, you read sections of the Old Testament and you get the clear impression that uh, they believe God believes that you can be righteous with God, have a right relationship with God based on the law. Uh, if you just keep the law, well, then you'll be righteous. Well, but if you don't, well, then, then, then you're under a curse. Uh, well, Jesus shows up, and in a way, everything he does is, is asking the question, how's that working for you? How's that law thing working for you? Because it was backfiring uh, on them because they can't keep the law, which is how Paul then comes to the conclusion that the law was given precisely to reveal that we can't be right-related with God on the basis of the law. So God was giving us a negative object lesson, and that is a schoolmaster to lead us to Christ, he says in Galatians 3. Um, now we see that the only way we can be rightly related really, really with God is to trust his character and to rely on his mercy. Um, and then he empowers us by his spirit to begin to be transformed into his likeness. So it's through the spirit, not works of the law. But you would never get that just reading the Old Testament. It, it, the meaning of the law totally takes on uh, a, a, different, a, a different dimension in light of the cross. I think the same thing is true of violence uh, and, and nationalism. I mean, uh, throughout the Old Testament, you get this idea that God is this God who is, uh, you know, plays favorites um, and just chooses particular people, even though even there, the purpose of choosing that people was to reach the world. But still, he wants to bless them more than other nations and all that. But when uh, Jesus shows up, he doesn't say a thing about, I mean, they try to loop him into that nationalism, but he always, they want to make him a king. Uh, it says in John 6, but he runs from it. He, he's not, he's not going to be defined by nationalism. And it uh, says a number of things that really go against this whole idea of the uniqueness of Israel. It's like God is the God of the whole world, and uh, he dies for the, for the whole world. And same thing with the violence. That, that go, all those things go hand in hand, the law, the, 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 the nationalism, and the violence. Because if you have a nation, you have a law, you have to have violence to enforce it. And, and so there's all the stuff in the Old Testament about you know, using the sword, these violent uh, uh, punishments for, for crimes and uh, you know, fighting people. When Jesus shows up, and the, 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 the promise was that if you'll obey the, the Lord, well, then he'll protect you. But if you don't, he will withdraw, and other nations will have their way with you, and that's his punishment. Well, when Jesus shows up, he's basically saying, uh, you know, how's that working for you? Because they've been in captivity now for almost a thousand years, been, been under the rule of other nations, and they suffered at the hands of the sword. And, and uh, what I see him doing, and it's a complete reframe, but he's saying, are you ready for something totally different? So you've heard eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth? That's Lex Telionis, the foundational principle of the Old Testament uh, of, of violent justice. Eye for an eye, tooth for tooth. Jesus says, you know what? I'm telling you, that's gone. Uh, I'm telling you to 
turn the other cheek and love your enemies and do good to those who despitefully use you. A completely new program. So it's like a negative object lesson that's setting up the coming of Jesus to say, you know, that's the wrong way to try to build a kingdom. Are you ready for the right way to, to do it? It's really quite incredible. Uh, some, of the, some of the early settlers uh, viewed America as sort of the, the city on a hill. Uh, it was... So sometimes they spoke of uh, America in terms of being the new Israel. Um, when they would slaughter the Native Americans, some of the Puritans preached sermons on this, how, how uh, you know, we are in the place of Israel, we are God's people, and they are the Canaanites, uh, and uh, we are justified, therefore, in um, taking their land and slaughtering them, uh, even as God told them in the Old Testament. And so there's this kind of redeemer uh, psyche that, that was there from early on in our nation. And that uh, we're going to be the, James Adams uh, said that, he said the 4th of July is the second to, second to Christmas, the 4th of July is the most sacred holiday for American Christians. Because, and you can find this in the Patriots Bible, uh, under commentary in Colossians 1 somewhere. It, it has nothing to do with the verse, but none of their commentaries do. But uh, in the Patriots Bible, they have this quote, and James Adams says that uh, it's the second most sacred holiday, July 4th, because on this date, uh, the... Uh, the fulfillment of, of that for which Jesus came began to be birthed. America is the fulfillment, or at least the political fulfillment, of the reason why Jesus came to earth. That's quite a statement to make about a nation. Um, but that's been the thing, that we're, we're going to save the world. You know, we're, we're the hope of, of, of the world. It's, it's typical nationalistic idolatry, except for the fact that it's kind of on steroids. Um, and so people are today who buy into this myth uh, have this idea that uh, we got to take America back for God, you know. Like, got to make a Christian nation once again. And I'm always wondering, when exactly were those good old Christian days? Uh, what did we try to get back to? Was it uh, before we slaughtered the Native Americans, or afterwards? Is that when we were really Christ-like, or, or, or was it before we imported, you know, the, the millions of Africans and made, got rich on the blood of their backs? Were those the good old Christian days we're trying to get back to? Well, I don't know when these mythic Christian days were, but as far as I can see, America's never been a nation that looked remotely like Jesus. And that's what the word Christian means. Uh, it's never been Christ. Like it's never turned the other cheek. It's never loved its enemies. It's never blessed its pers persecutors. Um, it used to welcome foreigners, but we stopped doing that. So uh, America's a, a good nation as nations go, but it's not Christian. It's not like, it's really not redemptive. Um, well, you said, Jesus said, hey, how's that? How's that? How's that? Oh, yeah, yeah. So how is it supposed to work? Okay, yeah. So. It, the whole kingdom is, is is about this, and this is this is the radical dimension of what Jesus came to do. It it, it is the the way of of living where you are uh, you live out of a relationship with God, the God who's revealed in Christ, on, primarily on the cross or essentially on the cross. And so it's it's cultivating a cruciform lifestyle, a self-sacrificial lifestyle, where you are um, reflecting God's character by how you. Uh, care about people and think about people and speak about people and are willing to sacrifice for people. Uh, instead of hoarding resources, you share resources. Instead of living in a self-centered way, you live with an or other-oriented mindset. Um, and uh, yeah, it's, it's living in love as Christ loved us and gave his life for us. Ephesians uh, 5.1. Uh, that is the that's kingdom. In the Bible? That, that's, in, that's in the Bible. It's all not, over the place. That's not in the communist manifesto. That's not, no, no. That, that's right out of the Bible. Uh, in fact, you can find that all over the place. Whoever, who, whoever abides in him, James says, whoever claims, or John says, whoever claims to live in him or abide in him must live as he lived, must walk as he walked. Uh, imitating Jesus is all throughout the New Testament. And it's, uh, 
That's what we're empowered to do when we surrender to him. And that is the kingdom of God. And it doesn't, you know, Paul says it's foolishness to the world and it's weakness to the world. Um, but to those who are called, who have answered God's call and uh, have, have surrendered their lives, uh, it is the power of God. Paul says the cross is the power of God. When God flexes his omnipotent muscle, it looks like the cross. It looks like him getting crucified out of love for others. Because that's how God's going to win the world and that's how God defeats evil. And we're called to trust in that power, which is the opposite of empire power, the opposite of conquest power, the opposite of sword power, bullet power, gun power, law power. It's, it's the power of self-sacrificial love. And it, that is the hope of the world. Not America, uh, not, not Obama, not any of that. It's, it's, uh, it's the, 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 the hope of the cross. That's what the book of Revelation is all about, the victory of the, the slain lamb. And he does warfare the exact opposite way that uh, the kings of this world do warfare. The book of Revelation is all about that. So we got this bloody warrior in, in Revelation 19. Everyone thinks that, you know, Mark Driscoll said that the uh, Jesus of Revelation is a, a pride fighter, a cage fighter, who's got a tattoo on his arm and a sword in his hand, a commitment to make somebody bleed. And uh, he says, that's the kind of guy I can worship. I could never worship this diapered, haloed, wimp, limp-wristed uh, Jesus that the liberals preach. I can I could, I could only worship a guy that I could beat up, which is kind of interesting because it seems to me that he already crucified him, right? We already beat him up. Um, but anyways, that's his theology. But I think he's getting Revelation all wrong. you got to read it carefully. And, and so you get this bloody warrior in Revelation 19, soaked in blood, which is a traditional image of a victorious warrior. It comes out of uh, Isaiah 65 and a few other places where, you know, the, the, the blood of your opponents is all over you. That's a sign, you know, you're the last one standing. That's your sign of victory. But what's interesting in Revelation 19 is that Jesus is soaked in blood before the battle. And he's drenched in blood before the battle, and that's John's way of showing that this warrior does battle not by shedding other people's blood, but by allowing his own blood to be shed. And he's, he has a sword, but he's not holding it in his hand. It's a sword that comes out of his mouth. And John tells us why it comes out of his mouth. It's because it's the word of truth. He's speaking the truth. So he does warfare by by uh, giving his life for others and by speaking truth. And as people follow the Lamb wherever he goes, it says, uh, we, our victory is, is, is not in, in conquering others, but by the word of our testimony and by the blood of the Lamb. We, we, we follow the, the, the cruciform way of the Lamb, and that's how we're victorious. Even when we're martyred, John says, that's still our victory because we're testifying to the truth of um, the, the victorious Lamb. That's, that's the future of the world. That's the hope of the world uh, that will ultimately dispel all evil and redeem creation. So just a couple things to think about. There's the joke. Everybody's quiet this morning. Uh, so I, I think as we reflect on this, which there was a lot there understood, um, but over and over, Boyd reminded people to, to take a look at the systems of the world and at Jesus' question throughout the scriptures, which he paraphrased as, how's that working for you? And, and, to, and to be able to, to engage in that way. Um, the way that we build God's kingdom is how we communicate what God's kingdom is about. I think sometimes we miss that. The way that we build this kingdom is how we communicate what it's about. So you can't build this kingdom of love that you say is all about God's love by force or through military or financial might, however you might interpret that. 
Uh, so, so it's a challenge to, to just think of our allegiances in a completely different way. So let's, let's just really keep it open-ended and give some space for, uh, for dialogue here. Can we, yeah, let's get the catch box up and going. And we do this regularly. If you're new to us, we, we have dialogue um, and, and uh, space to process together. And so some of the questions maybe that you'll want to just, this is just a chance to give some brief responses or you can ask a fresh question. But uh, what do you sense Jesus stirring as you reflect on this idea of, of the importance of building God's kingdom in a cruciform way or a, a Christ-like way that looks like primarily self-sacrificial love for God and others? Uh, what, what is Jesus stirring in you as you reflect? What, what might be the risk of the Redeemer Nation myth? All right? of thinking that one country has the calling to essentially be Jesus in the world or be God's people. Um, what are the implications of that thinking, of, of thinking that the U.S. might be God's preferred nation? What, what might happen if, if that's the attitude that we bring into our faith? When you think of the image of Jesus in Revelation as a cage fighter Lord versus a suffering servant Lord, how does that impact your faith? What would allegiance to Jesus look like in either of those views? And then uh, what practical steps might Jesus be inviting you into today, just in your, own, in your own thinking? So I know it's a lot. It's okay if it's just some fresh processing for 10 minutes here or so, but, uh, whoops. but we're going we're gonna to get in. So we have this throwable microphone. It's called a catch box. And if you just lift your hand, share your name, and, uh, and hop in with a question or a thought uh, that helps us keep moving toward Jesus. Thanks, Jonathan. Whoops, I gave your name away. Yes, my name is Jonathan. That's true. Thank you, Keith. Um, no, I, I appreciated the context you set up on the whiteboard there before we watched the video, the, 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 the conflict between the allegiances and the intertwining of the allegiances because um, I remember that being something that was distinctly bothering me back in 2016, 2017, uh, especially in conversations with some of my other family members. Um, it was something I really got stuck on, uh, and it's something that really didn't make sense to me. Um, it was just so frustrating and upsetting to me, like, what, what in the world is going on here? Like, um, in just in some of the, the tenor of some of the conversations that I was having with some of the people I love very much and are still very close with me in my life and mm -hmm. who, who gave me an inheritance of faith. And I'm having this, these conversations and there's this blindness to how this one allegiance to the nation is at such dramatic odds to the allegiance I thought we were supposed to have as our primary allegiance. And um, so you kind of bringing that stuff up just reminded me how, how much that was really affecting me years and years ago. Um, and so I appreciate you setting that context for today. Thanks, Jonathan. It reminds us of the power of, of language and words, too. Like, if you repeat that something is Christian or, or use Christian-sounding language around things all the time, we begin to link them instead of thinking maybe a little bit more critically. Does this reflect Jesus and how? My name is Nate, and I'll just follow up on what John said. Um, the implications in thinking the U.S. is God's preferred nation, I think um, that's what kind of jarred me in that season and got me kind of moving away from what I used to think towards more like what Greg was talking about today. Um, we always used to hear about, you know, the moral relativism, moral relativism and postmodernism, how it's coming to get us. Mm -hmm. um, and it was weird when I realized, like, that 
moral relativism, that's a hard word to say, by the way, um, was always like, you know, you heard the end, don't ju end doesn't justify the means, but then that's kind of the end result of thinking that, the implication of thinking that, you know, the U.S. is so important in God's plan that whatever it takes to accomplish it is then fair game, mm -hmm. that, that, you know, these values and ideals we claim to have, well, when push comes to shove, this is more important to see whether it's this piece of legislation passed or, or whatever the, the case may be. So it's leveraged into this whole like existential crisis, like, well, we have to do this because, you know, we need to do this for, for God's sake, otherwise God's gonna lose the, the whole deal if we, don't, if we don't go along with whatever the thing is, um, mm -hmm. which was very disturbing uh, at that time. Yeah, it does, it does seem that um, in the most recent season, and I'm going to say this, that this is, these can impact a number of political viewpoints, just so that we, we need to constantly remember this. But there is a growing sense that, that the kingdom of God gets established by my candidate getting elected. And now there might be better or worse, I certainly believe that there are, choices and, and laws that lead to justice and whatever. But when our understanding is that the kingdom of God can only move forward if this guy, usually, um, gets in the right position, then we're not actually placing our trust in Jesus or listening to the way that the kingdom of God is established that Jesus explains. And so it's a dangerous way of thinking um, that we need to just be aware of, even as we maybe grow in being passionate about political viewpoints or, or policies or things like that, which I don't think are wrong in and of themselves. But if we start to link these two things, whoo! I am Dwayne. Um, I'm thinking of rephrasing the second half of the second question. Yeah. What are the implications of realizing that there are other Jesus followers who truly think that the U.S. is God's preferred nation? Mm to resist the idea of encampment and to resist the idea of us versus them, it, it helps me to have more compassion because people have been taught that, people believe that deep in their core and they are following Jesus as they know how, but it looks like pledging allegiance to the flag. And so to understand that everybody's just doing the best they can and we have to figure out a way to all work together as citizens of God's kingdom to, yeah, there you go. Yeah. To, to, help, to help shift all of our allegiances to that, if that makes sense. So that for me, that second question really took me in a direction of, of compassion for others and realizing that I, just, I cannot get encamped in this idea that, well, I understand, you just don't understand. Yeah, because the polarization know? of our world says that that position that you're suggesting that you want to grow in is, is selling out, right? You're not actually standing for truth if you make space for someone who might be in a different spot, even just for dialogue. And I, we're not even talking about saying, hey, we're all on the same page. It's about saying that I'm not going to write off your entire identity um, because we've had different things that have formed us and maybe a different understanding. Hi, I'm Brian again. Um, thinking about the second question, I mean, I, I don't know... I mean, I, I don't have the imagination, or maybe nobody does, of what, like, what does the kingdom look like in terms of nations, right? And like, <laughs> you know, um, but I think when we, we go with this redeemer nation myth, 
I feel like we get into a lot of end justifies the means, yeah. right? Yeah. Because um, how are we, you know, if we're bringing, you know, the kingdom to the earth, look at the means that are often employed and think about that versus what we are taught by yeah. Jesus on how to act. So, so I don't know what it should look like, but I think the pathway to getting there looks like what Jesus taught us to do in terms of how we mm -hmm. treat other people and things like that. Yeah, yeah. The, and this is, I think that's really a linchpin of this whole thing, is the end justifies the means ideas of how much, how much do we get in bed with power, the power sources of the world in order to achieve what we think is, is the ultimate good, uh, and, and sometimes how, how well, much And how we treat people we that our, don't... And how we treat people that... We don't see as being, you know, Christians, that. say. Yeah, right. Thanks. Any other thoughts or um, questions to bring in? Yeah, two? Hey, Steve. Um, it's funny, everybody was kind of migrating towards the second question. I was looking more at like the third question. And I, I sit and think about how I grew up um, not wanting to back a loser. So, you know, when you think of Jesus saying, turn the other cheek, well, you know, just going to pop culture references like, you know, Rambo, the guy that's the underdog, um, or, you know, we're going in by force and caking everything. That's who we back. We like the strength over the forgiveness part of it. You know, the forgiveness end is a, is a Hallmark movie somewhere written for somebody else. But, you know, as an American, this is what I grew up with, you know, strength and, and power that, that exerts here. And it, it's kind of hard because when you're faced with that on a daily um, instance where you have to forgive. And I've always, you know, kind of myself personally thought, you know, I forgive because God's forgiven me. And trust me, God's forgiven me for a lot of stuff. So if I, if I approach the world in that manner, I don't always have to win that argument. I don't always have to be the guy out on the end saying, yeah, force won this time versus, you know, turning the other cheek and, and trying to see it from that other person's point of view. So that's kind of one of those things that, you know, for me was a lifelong lesson. And of course, that equal and opposite force thing, we know, we've talked about that just a few weeks ago, what that does, right? Nobody remembers two injuries ago. All you remember is the last thing that happened. So an eye for an eye leads to another eye, leads to another eye, leads to another eye, leads to another eye, because you don't ever remember two shots back. You only remember what was done to you. And so this is what we call the myth of redemptive violence. So even this idea of, of like, this is, this is how you accomplish things, right? It ultimately doesn't work. It leads to generations of people groups against each other back and forth and nobody even remembers really what the original injury was. And so there has to be a different way. So I would add to that that the way of Jesus, of turning the other cheek and of self-sacrificial love actually began the most powerful movement that the world has ever seen. It just didn't look like the dominance of the cultures. Great. I'm Ian. Um, I, I'm not sure I have a, a, a great point here, but just some thoughts. Um, the, the Redeemer Nation, I know we're all kind of gravitating our question to, but it's a good one. Um, it's sort of like we talked about the ends justifying the means, and sort of the thought occurs to me that like if, if we conflate, if we conflate these ideas together, we're essentially looking at our means are already justified because what we, if we're the Redeemer Nation, our actions are by definition justice. They're by definition God's will. Like, the Constitution is 
the new New Testament. Yeah. Um, and like, okay. like laws written, you know, anything, anything we, that happens in DC is just more justice. Mm. And that's not always true, like often not true. Yeah, um, because all of a sudden we start talking about collateral, you know, well, right. it's just the cost of yeah. getting to where we need to get. Yeah, like the three-fifths compromise is like, that's nowhere near the Bible, <laughs> you know, yeah, like that kind of stuff. Image of God, right? Um, but every single person. Yeah. yeah. Hmm. All right. Well, we're good. Yep. So, I, I've been trying to think through the fourth question. Oh, say my name. Yeah. My name is Kristen. Uh, and what practical steps could we be taking? And for me, when I think about situations where we're justifying um, a nation's accountability in the world, or justifying. Um, what it is that there's this this earthly this 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 power here that is is in charge that is ultimately accountable for right and wrong and justice in this earth we've got a misplaced accountability there and so um, I go back to and I, I often come to the conclusion that when I forget about what it means to be a steward versus what it means to be the ruler right and so when I think about then the practical steps I, I land back on to practically help me um, live in this space where I realize that the kingdom is God's kingdom. I have to practice things that promote stewardship. And that's both in terms of like my money and in terms of my time. And I'm not going to get on a rant about tithing or, um, or, or Sabbath. But it also is in terms of information. And that's what really caught me today with what Dwayne was saying. Is I also need to think about what does it mean to steward what I know. To, to say I don't have to know everything. God knows Right, he is the source of that truth. I do not need to be the source of that truth in these conversations. And so, I think all those things that promote stewardship um, can be very practical things. Right, just mm -hmm. checking myself and saying, I don't have to know the truth in this moment. Meaning, meaning, meaning that you don't have to push into. I don't have to push or figure it all it, out in order to be loving and faithful. Exactly. Interesting. Exactly. That's a great, that's, that's a great personal implication for for this kind of stuff. Exactly. Because it does have to start on the smallest levels, right? We can't, if, if the only thing that you can hear is the geopolitical implications of this, I mean, then you're gonna boil down faithfulness to what one thing that happens every, you know, every two years on a Tuesday for five seconds for most of us, you know? So, so that is just not the kingdom of God. So um, yeah, I think thinking about what is our lives, are our lives reflecting this Lord first and then let that ripple out to, okay, how do we then work in this spirit larger and larger and larger and larger in our community? Thanks, Kristen. Okay, so this is very different than what we often do, right, which is um, very pointed. And we're going to look at a lot of different understandings um, over the coming weeks with different voices. Like I said, this was one of the longer ones. Um, but we'll, we'll be reflecting on understandings of how we view land, understandings of how we view relationships with a kingdom idea and, uh, and power a little bit more. Uh, but we're going to kind of lean into a scripture, have some reflection from a different voice, um, that's, and we'll have a lot more diversity in terms of, of thoughts and experiences coming, um, and then have dialogue each week. So the point is to be a little bit more okay with the uncomfortable part of learning what it means to be a disciple of Jesus as we live in the United States. And again, this is fraught with all sorts, of, uh, all sorts of landmines, right? That can get you all fired up. But listen, if we don't talk about this now, then you're gonna be on like, t 
TikTok and Facebook in a couple months, and it's just like, it gets horribly ugly. And so we need to be secure personally in our understanding of our allegiances before we get so angry at other people for their allegiances that we start, stop looking like Jesus. Like, you want to know what it looks like for a church to be a witness in the world? Watch how a church acts during election season. I don't even want to talk about it because it was so traumatic four years ago and eight years ago. I mean, this stuff is really, really intense, and it touches on people's very understanding of their essence. We've got to let Jesus be the very understanding of our essence and understanding that good rulers or bad rulers are still Caesar at the end of the day. And Jesus is our Lord and Caesar's not. That's a different message, sorry. All right, uh, let's share in the table, which is how we remind ourselves over and over again that Jesus is our Lord, that the love and the grace and the self-giving forgiveness and the redemption of Jesus is where our identity lies. And we receive that because Jesus said, I'm offering you my spirit. I'm offering you the grace and the favor and the care of God. So when we take the cup and the bread, we are reminding ourselves of whose we are and who we are. So as you come, um, our servers can come on up. Thanks. Uh, and as, as you come, you can come down the center aisles and you can tear a piece of bread off. We have a shared loaf because we believe that there's power in that. And we believe it reflects as best we can the imagery of Jesus. However, if you are gluten intolerant, that is not a uh, mark against your spirituality. And there are options right here behind the cups for you to take. Um, but you'll hear the words, the bread of life given for you. The table is open for anyone who desires to move toward Jesus uh, together to participate. So we have an open table uh, like we very strongly believe Jesus did. Um, and so you can come down the center aisle, take um, the bread, dip it in the wine or the juice, take a moment to be thankful, and curl around the outside edge, and then we'll give you some announcements and, and uh, send you out. All right? So Lord, uh, as we think about what it means to have our allegiance as the way of, of a lamb that was willing to sacrifice uh, and not a conquering king. Lord, help us to be at peace with your way so that we might lean into it and trust that your kingdom is more beautiful than anything we can imagine in our world. And help us to faithfully live it out in whatever ways you're stirring us in. Amen.